Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the book of Psalms. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Tonight, we are going to be looking at Psalm 35. Don't turn there. Turn instead to John chapter 15. One of the many ways in which Christianity is misrepresented in the world. People will tell you, if you come to Christ, everything's going to get better for you. Your life's going to improve. You're going to get more stuff, health, wealth, prosperity. And people are just going to like you. That's just the opposite of what Jesus says here in John 15. And in the midst of his argument about the differences between the people of God and the people of the world, he's actually going to make reference to Psalm 35. So I figure we'll start tonight with Jesus' own words here in John 15. We're going to start reading at verse 18, where Jesus says, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. That's not exactly a message you can go out on the street corner and start preaching and tell people this is the good news of Jesus Christ. The good news is come to Jesus and people will hate you. Pass the plate. Yeah. (laughs) But Jesus is very plain in saying that if you belong to him, if you belong to God, that the world, the people who are enemies of God, that world, the world that hates holiness and righteousness, that world is going to hate you if you identify with Christ. But then you need to remember because... We as human beings have this natural sense of fairness. We want things to be explainable. We want reasons for why things happen. And so when we hear that someone hates us, I mean, from our very earliest days, when we're in elementary school and some kid says, well, you know, so-and-so doesn't like you, our first question is, why? Why don't they like me? We want explanations. Jesus says here, if the world hates you, it's because they hated me first. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it has hated you. Because if you were of the world, the world would love its own. Sure, if you were part of the world, then the world would naturally have affection for you because you're a sinner like they are. And there's comfort in numbers when you can look around and say, well, everybody is just as corrupt as I am, then you could feel better about your own corruption. And if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but because I chose you out of the world, therefore, the world hates you. So there's your reason. 
The reason why the world will dislike you is because you belong to Christ. And they get that sense that you are in Christ and Christ is in you. You have that appearance, that smell. You have that talk of eternity about you. And when the world gets a whiff of that, it reminds them that there is a judge in heaven. And it reminds them of their own sinfulness, their own depravity. And so naturally, the the immediate reaction from the world is to avoid that sense of guilt. And the quickest way to avoid that guilt is to get you to just shut up and go away. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're also going to persecute you. If they kept my word, then they will also keep yours. So Jesus there divided all of humanity into two camps, those who are going to persecute Christians and those who are going to listen to the words of Christians. And the reason that they're going to listen to the words of Christians is because they listen to Christ. And because they have the mind of Christ and the spirit of Christ, therefore they're not offended by the words or the behavior of Christian people. But if they don't have that spirit of Christ in them, they're going to hate you because they hated Christ. And Jesus promises you right here that if you walk around in this world giving evidence of Christianity, that the world is not going to embrace you for that. They're going to hate you for that. Verse 21, but all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. They don't know me because they don't know God. Verse 22, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin or they would not have sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sin. But now they have both seen and they've hated me and my father as well. But they have done this in order that the word may be fulfilled that is written in their law, they hated me without a cause. When we get to Psalm 35 in a moment, David's argument to God is going to be, my enemies hate me, but they hate me without a cause. Jesus says, well, because that's already written in your law, because it's already in your scripture, that has to be satisfied. So therefore, when people hate you in this world, recognize that they are only doing what God already said they were going to do. They're rejecting you because they rejected Christ, because they reject God. And yet the scripture, proving itself to be true over and over again, the scripture said in advance that people were going to be like that. Let me add a little theological thought here for you. Notice that Jesus refers to David in the Psalms here as part of the law. Sometimes when we read the word law, nomos in the Greek, We think of the books of Moses, of the law that came down out of Sinai, 
And we think, well, that's the law. And whenever anybody in the New Testament says law, that's what they mean. But here, Jesus is quoting from David in the Psalms, which is actually part of the writings. It's a prophetic bit of writing, according to Jesus. But really interestingly, when we come across it in Psalm 35, David is arguing to God that his enemies have no cause for the way they are persecuting him and that they hate him without a cause. And you would not read that on its face and think, that's a messianic psalm right there. You wouldn't think, well, that's a prophecy right there. And yet Jesus picks it up. That little phrase from David, Jesus picks it up and says, that applies to me. And it applies to you. And it applies to all God's people. And it applies to all Christian folk. That the world is going to hate you because the world has always hated the people of God. Look, they hated David way back then, thousand years ago. They're hating me right now. They're going to hate you out into the future. Don't be surprised that the world dislikes you. But recognize, again, Jesus' use of the word law. I have pointed out several times that there is a Hebraism that Jesus uses, the law and the prophets. Sometimes he even says, the law, the prophets, the writing, referring to the Torah and to the prophets and to the writing, the whole of the Old Testament. But sometimes he uses a shorthand phrase where he just says, in their law, and what he means is, in the Old Testament, in their scripture, in their writing. Once God has said something's going to happen, it is absolutely going to happen. The fact that the world hates the people of God, that is something that absolutely has to happen because it was already written down in their law. They hated me without a cause. I'll just read the last couple of verses here for context. When the Helper, the Holy Spirit, comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness of me, and you will bear witness also, because you have been with me from the beginning. So, in telling his apostles that they are going to go and martyr themselves before the world, marturus, the word that is translated as witness, they're going to go out and witness of Jesus, and as they're doing that, they should not expect that the world is going to embrace them. This is the same Jesus who said, woe to you when all men speak well of you. If you're doing your Christianity correctly, then there's going to be portions of this world that just hate you for it. And that's because they hate Jesus. That's because they hate God. And that's been true of human beings ever since David's day. So with that introduction, let's go to Psalm 35. Outside of that one bit of Jesus quoting from Psalm 35, there's very little in Psalm 35 that is not understandable right on its face. It is really just a plea from David that God would rescue him from his enemies. I think we've seen time and time again that David did not have an easy life. Sometimes we think, oh, well, King David, man after God's own heart, king of Israel, he must have had servants bowing and scraping before him. He must have been able to do whatever he wanted to do all the time. But what we see in the Psalms and what we read in the history, 1 and 2 Samuel, 
is that David was on the run a lot, and he had enemies a lot. Of his own family, he had enemies. And of course, there were all kinds of politics and people who wanted his power and people who opposed him as king who spread a lot of rumors about him because he was trying to lead Israel according to the law of God. And so there were enemies from without and there were enemies from within and David was surrounded by his enemies. And so he begins Psalm 35 by saying, fight for me, God. I'm so surrounded by so many detractors, so many people who want to do me harm, so many people who want me dead that I can't keep up with it. I can't fight this fight. Therefore, you have to fight for me, God. Contend, O Yahweh, with those who contend with me. Those who fight against me are going to be overwhelming. And if you don't fight for me, the fighting's not going to get done. I, I cannot handle the overwhelming number of people who are against me. Fight against those who fight against me. Verse 2, take hold of buckler and shield. Do you know what a buckler is? A small circular shield. It is a small circular shield. Very good. And then a larger shield would be the kind of shield that you would rest on the ground and sort of hide behind. So those are both defensive weapons. A small shield and a large shield, things you can hide behind. So take a hold of your shield and your buckler and rise up for my help. And then also bring your offensive weapons. Fight for me by throwing a spear at them. Draw also the spear and the battle axe to meet those who pursue me. And say to my soul, I am your salvation. That once again is an example of David using the term salvation when he's not talking about eternal salvation. He's not saying, save my soul and take me to heaven. He's saying, save my life. Keep me from being overwhelmed and killed by my enemies. Save me in that aspect and say to me, I'm your salvation. Let those be ashamed and dishonored who seek my life. And let those be turned back and humiliated who devise evil against me. And let them be like chaff before the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them on. He wants the angel of the Lord to fight for him. He wants the angel of the Lord to defend him. And the angel of the Lord then would drive them on until they become like chaff that just blows away in the wind. Verse 6, let their way be dark and slippery. In other words, confound them. Make it difficult for them to get to me. Hide them in the dark and make them slip over their own Plans, their own traps that they set for me. Let their way be dark and slippery. And with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. For without cause, they hid their net for me. Without cause, they dug a pit for my soul. So he's described two different ways that they're trying to catch him, trying to capture him. They are digging Pits for him to fall into, 
but they're also hanging up nets for him to get his foot caught in so that they can trap him. So they're consciously, purposefully laying traps for David. So let destruction come upon him unawares. And let the net which he hid catch himself into that very destruction. Let him fall. Okay, so those first eight verses, David has laid out his plea before God. That's his case. I'm in trouble here. There's no way out. God, you yourself have to deliver me because I cannot deliver myself. But then in the midst of that, and this is very typical Davidic writing, in the midst of that plea, he then offers praise and thanksgiving to God, which is a vital part of how we are to approach God. Yes, it's perfectly fine to go to God and say, help me. It's perfectly fine to go to God and say, deliver me. Get me through this day. Get me through this trial. Get me through this heartache. That's perfectly fine. But remember who you're talking to. And remember to praise him, to worship him, to thank him in the midst of all that. Verse 9. And my soul shall rejoice in Yahweh. It shall exult in his salvation, in his deliverance. Verse 10, I like this phrase. And all my bones will say, has anybody's bones been talking lately? He means from my inner man, from my inner core, down to my very marrow. I will recognize, I will announce, I will proclaim that Yahweh, who is like you, you deliver the afflicted from him who is too strong for him. So if there is deliverance for the poor, if there's deliverance for the downtrodden, when there is deliverance from certain death, David gives all the credit to God, that it is God who saves the afflicted. And the afflicted and the needy are going to be saved from him who robs him. And I will say that from my deepest bones, I will understand that intrinsically. I will understand that on the cellular level that I can't do it. Flesh can't do it. We just talked about that last night. Flesh profits nothing. And David says, I will recognize from the depths of who I am that only God can deliver people from the evil of this world. And all my bones will say, Yahweh, who is like thee, who delivers the afflicted from him who is too strong for him, and who delivers the afflicted and the needy from him who robs him. Malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me of things that I do not know. I think what David's getting at there is not that he's generally ignorant. He's saying, they're demanding of me things that they have made up that I have no knowledge of. I'm not part of it. I'm not in this in any way. And yet they're making up these stories. They are malicious. They are making up lies about me and then accusing me of things that I have no knowledge of. They ask me things that I do not know. And they repay me evil for good. If that sounds familiar in the New Testament, 
We're never to do that. You'd never repay good with evil. You repay evil with good. You repay good with good, but you'd never use evil as your recompense against other people. And yet that's what was happening to David. They repay me with evil for good to the bereavement of my soul. You may recall the many times now that David has said that his pillow is wet with his tears, that he's been up all night wearing his voice out, crying out to God for deliverance. And this kind of recognition of evil in the world and the hatred that they have for the king that God himself chose this kind of hatred that they have for God and his law, for God and his righteousness. David says that that breaks his heart and bereaves his soul. But as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled my soul with fasting, and my prayer kept returning to my bosom. I went about as though it were my friend or brother. I bowed down, mourning as one who sorrows over a mother. So David's saying, when they had hard times, I was always there for them. If you ever had a friend turn on you, you know how that hurts. Boy, that kind of betrayal really stings. And David says, that's how I treated these people. I treated them well. I treated them good. When they went through hardship, when they were sick, I acted as if it was my own mother, my own brother. I treated them as nothing but friends. Verse 15, but at my stumbling, they rejoice. And they gathered themselves together, the smiters whom I did not know, gathered together against me. And they slandered me without ceasing. That's the important point that David keeps coming back to. They're saying stuff about David that simply isn't true. Mm -hmm. Stuff that David would say, I have no knowledge of it. I didn't do it. I'm innocent in this matter. And yet they are spreading these rumors and these lies about me. They're slandering me ceaselessly. Verse 16, he compares them to godless jesters at a feast. In other words, they're joking about it. They're happy about it. The same way that kings might bring in entertainment and jesters and amusements at their feasts. He says these evil people are going about joyfully telling lies about me. And they gnash their teeth at me. Verse 17. He goes back to his plea to God. Yahweh, how long will you just look on? I added the word just because that's the implication of what David is saying. How long are you going to watch this? How long are you going to let this keep going? That's the feeling that I think we've all experienced in our lifetimes. We even write songs about it. You remember the song, farther along, we'll know more about it. There's a line in that song, while there are others gone on before us, never molested, though in the wrong. That's the same thing David is saying. I see what's happening. I see the evil. I hear the lies. I see these people 
conspiring against me and gnashing their teeth at me when I've been nothing but good to them. And how long are you going to let this go on, God? Well, it was going on in David's time, went on in Jesus' time, still going on today. Am I the only person in this room who's ever had people talk bad about them? No. I mean, it's a very, very common thing. Lord, how long will you look on? Rescue my soul from their ravages. Rescue my only life from the lions. In the Middle East, in David's day, the lion was one of the most dangerous creatures that they could happen across when they were out on the road or out in the wilderness. And so he is likening these ravaging, slandering, godless jesters who are gnashing their teeth at him. He's likening them to lions who are trying to destroy him and eat him alive. And so he says to God, deliver my life from these lions and I will give thee thanks in the great congregation, and I will praise thee among the mighty throng. David giving credit yet again to God. You're my only hope. If you don't do it, it's not going to get done. If you don't fight for me, this is too overwhelming for me to do. But the same way that David just praised God in the midst of his pleas for help, he's also saying here, once you have delivered me, I'm going to go into the great congregation. I'm going to go to all of Israel. And I'm going to say, I'm going to announce, I'm going to proclaim your greatness. And I'm going to give thanks to you publicly in the great congregation. And praise you among the mighty throng. Verse 19. Do not let those who are wrongfully my enemies rejoice over me. Neither let those who hate me without cause wink maliciously. That winking maliciously has to do with them setting their plans. You know, tonight at midnight, we're going to be outside the wall and we're going to get David. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. They're making their evil plans. And as they're doing it, David says here, they're doing it without a cause. And that seems to be what Jesus picked up. I mean, reading it right here, did you get the sense, oh, that's a messianic psalm? Did you get the sense that David was speaking prophetically when he said this? And yet Jesus picks up that very idea from this very psalm and these very words. He picks that up, applies it to himself and to all of us collectively to explain why it is that the world hates us. And I think his listeners, knowing that he was quoting from David, would understand that he was saying, look, they hated David. They've always hated people after God's heart. They're hating me. They're going to hate you. That's just the way the world is. Don't be surprised by it. But notice that Jesus takes even minute phrases like this because every single word of the Old Testament is ultimately pointing to Christ. And he takes something as small as that and applies it to himself and uses it to explain why it is that the world's going to hate you. 
And I find that very interesting, that Jesus would continually look at subject matter that plainly on its face has to do with David being surrounded by enemies, and he would still apply it to himself, because he is the center of all Christianity. He is the center of all the Bible. He is the center of all eternity. And here again, he goes, yeah, David said it, but it's really about me. Verse 19 again. Do not let those who are wrongfully my enemies rejoice over me. Neither let those who hate me without cause wink maliciously. For they do not speak peace, but they devise deceitful words against those who are quiet in the land, those who are resting in the land, those who are resting in God, those who are walking according to the law of God. The deceitful are always against them. Verse 21, and they have opened their mouth wide against me. And they said, aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. So even as they are being false witnesses, breaking the law of God dramatically, even the Ten Commandments includes not giving false witness, here they are saying things falsely against David and then claiming that they saw it with their own eyes. That is the very definition of what a false or lying or deceitful witness is. They are being false witnesses. And they're saying, aha, aha, we discovered it. Our eyes have seen it. But then David rests in the sovereignty of God in verse 22. It says, thou hast seen it, O Lord. In other words, you know the truth of it. You know whether what they're saying is true. You're watching me all the time. You know if I actually did these things they're accusing me of. So regardless of their charge against me, you, God, have actually seen it. And so since you know the truth, then defend me. Stand up for me. Thou hast seen it, O Lord. Do not keep silent. O Lord, do not be far from me. Stir up thyself and awake to my right. That word means to my cause, to my defense. Judge this, adjudicate it, and adjudicate it in such a way that it defends me because you know, God, it's good to know in this very godless world that God still knows, that God still loves us, that God chose us before the foundation of the world, and that God sees the lies that are cast against us, and that Christ is still our advocate and our defense. And so David makes his defense based in the sovereignty of God, recognizing what the truth is as opposed to the lies that these slanderers have been saying against him ceaselessly. Stir up thyself and awake to my right and to my cause, my God and my Lord. Judge me, O my God, according to thy righteousness. Do not let them Rejoice over me. Clearly, David is thinking that if God judges him in this matter, 
that he's going to come out okay. He's not saying, judge me, God, throw me into outer darkness, I, I beg you. He's saying, stand up for my cause. Defend me against my enemies. Judge me, O Lord my God, according to your righteousness. I've been trying to walk in your righteousness. I've been living in your righteousness. I've been a king according to your righteousness. Therefore, in defense of your own righteousness, be my judge. Be my advocate. Do not let them rejoice over me. Do not let them say in their heart, aha, our desire. In other words, we desire to see David taken down. So don't let them ever get to say, oh good, he got taken down. Don't let them ever say, aha, our desire came true. The upshot of our plans and all the lies and the subterfuge and the way that we have spoken against David has now all come to its fruition. Don't let them ever say that. Don't let them say in their hearts, aha, our desire. Do not let them say, we have swallowed him up. We finally defeated him. Finally threw him down, finally got him off the throne, and we don't have to hear about that righteousness, holiness thing anymore. We can go back to just living our lives according to our sinful flesh, and we don't have to feel guilty anymore because now we have the upper hand. Does that sound familiar? Sound kind of like what's happening in the world right now? I mean, it seems like the evil forces of this world are having their day at the moment and are celebrating that they're having their day, are passing laws and standards that are directly opposed to biblical righteousness, power in numbers. And they're saying, aha, our desire. You Christians can't stop us. Sure, America has a lot of churches, but they can't stop us from doing what we want to do. We'll govern the way we want to govern. We'll accomplish what we want to accomplish. So whether it was in David's day or whether it's today, this sinful, God-forsaking world will constantly celebrate itself in opposition to God. Do not let them say in their heart, aha, our desire. Do not let them say we have swallowed him up. Let those be ashamed and humiliated altogether who rejoice at my distress. Is that ultimately going to happen, by the way? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think one of the reasons that the sinful, God-forsaken world, I keep using that phrase to define the world that we're living in, but one of the reasons that they continue down the slippery slope of continuous, ever-expanding evil is because up until now, they've gotten away with it. There's been no judgment yet. I mean, it would be different if the minute somebody rebelled against God, God just zapped them with a lightning bolt or something. There'd be a lot fewer people who were openly rebellious against God because they'd have instantaneous fear. But because they seem to be getting away with it, because they seem to be accomplishing their own godless desires, they have that sense that they are unstoppable, unassailable, and never going to be judged. But according to the Bible, are they ever going to be judged? 
yeah, that day of judgment is coming. We've been reading about it on Sunday mornings in the book of Revelation, and it's not pretty. And so David here is saying, let them be ashamed and humiliated altogether who rejoice at my distress. And let those be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves over me. And then by contrast in verse 27, let them shout for joy and rejoice who favor my vindication. And let them say continually, the Lord be magnified. So here David has separated all human beings one more time into two camps, the same way we see all the way through the Bible. There are those who oppose holiness and righteousness, who oppose God's governance, who oppose God's kings, God's rule, God's law. And then there are those people who are in favor of God. And those people are ultimately going to shout for joy over the deliverance that God provides, but they're also going to give God all the credit. None of them are going to say, yay, we did it. What they're going to say is, the Lord be magnified. And notice that David says they're going to say that continually, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of what it is they've been delivered from, whether it's from enemies, whether it's from sickness, whether it's from death, whether it's from people making up lies against them. Deliverance in this evil world can only come from God. And let them say continually, the Lord be magnified, who delights in the prosperity of his servant. What David is saying is, ultimately God himself, the Lord himself, delights in taking care of his people, in protecting his people, in giving good things to his people. Jesus even said that. In telling his apostles how to pray, he said, your father in heaven knows what things you have need of. I mean, it's your father's good pleasure to give you all these good things. Yes, Jesus said to also go ask him, which I think is just a recognition that every good thing that we get in this world comes down from the father of lights, as James says. But he gives us all good things David, consistent with that theology, says that everybody who is in favor of God is going to shout and rejoice and continually say, the Lord be magnified, the Lord be lifted up, that God be raised up and worshiped for who he is, and he delights in the prosperity of his servants. And my tongue shall declare your righteousness and your praise all day long. Notice that through this whole psalm, David has been arguing, they're lying on me, God. Do you hear them? I know you do. I know you see them. They're telling me that I've been places and done things that I was never there and I never did these things. They want to take me down and they want to destroy me. But notice that the way he wraps up is, but what I'm going to declare is you are righteous. Even though David is arguing for his own rightness, 
in as much as he's saying, I wasn't there, I didn't do it, you know, judge me according to your righteousness. Ultimately, he realizes that all righteousness comes from God, that God is the source of righteousness. And so my tongue shall declare your righteousness, and therefore your praise all day long, continually, constant praise. So if we come away with nothing else from this psalm, the big principles that I want you to come away with here is, yeah, you're going to be hated in this world. If you're doing your Christianity correctly, if you're doing your Christianity in a way where the world likes you and approves of you, sees nothing particularly wrong with you, and thinks you're just another entertainment venue, then yeah, you're not going to have any opposition from the world, and you're going to be connected politically, and uh, yeah, not going to have any opposition from the world. But woe to you when all men speak well of you. Clearly, you're doing it wrong. Now, I'm not saying that you need to go out there and be the kind of people that people will naturally hate. Mm. We're never told, go out and be an offense. There is a built-in offense to Christianity. There is a built-in offense to godliness. Like I've said so many times, if you walk around being obviously Christian, talking about Christian things, behaving and conducting yourself in Christian ways, you're like a big red neon sign to everybody around you that Christianity does exist, God does exist, there is a judgment coming, the Bible is true, and they don't like that. They hate that. They want you to shut up and go away. And so they are naturally going to hate you because there's a built-in offense to the cross, as Paul says. The cross itself, the teaching of Christ, is an offense. So you don't have to go out and try to be offensive. Instead, you're told to love one another. You're told to love your enemies. You're told to do good as much as is within you, to do good to everyone. But the offense is coming. And so when you know that you're being hated for the cause of Christ, you'll recognize that it is because they hate Christ. And that, according to Christ, is because they hate God. And they've been hating God ever since Cain slew Abel. They've been hating God ever since what we talked about on Sunday, Nimrod and the Tower of Babel. I mean, you can look throughout the Old Testament, you see the God-haters and the worshipers of foreign gods and the Baal worship and the, the rejection of God that just permeates the Old Testament. And so David is arguing that God is his only defense. That in this really, truly God-forsaking world, in this sinful world, we're never going to be able to defend ourselves. We're never going to be able to stand up for ourselves and take down the multiple enemies that are coming at us from every angle. If we're going to be delivered, it's going to be God who delivers us. And thankfully, he's a very faithful God, and he does continually deliver us. I can prove that by the fact that, hey, we're here. They haven't destroyed us yet. We're still here. And that is to God's credit. That is to God's glory. And that's not because we have been tenacious. It's not because we have 
stood our ground and said, we will not be moved. God gives us the power to do any of those things. So all the praise, all the glory goes back to God. It's true in David's time. It's true in Jesus' time. It's true for us now. And that is Psalm 35. Questions? If you could fight your own battles, your pride would never allow you to come to God. Mm. Yeah, if you could do it. If you could save yourself, you don't need a savior. Yep, because right. we got the pride. Oh, we got the pride. Oh, yeah. We, if there's anything we got, it's the pride. Yes, sir. Uh, it's interesting that David, as king, would have been somebody that had access to resources to defend himself in Armies. ways that you know we would not be able to, and yet he still appealed to the Lord for his defense his vengeance, his justice, all those things when he was accused falsely. And it's what we're called to do. Paul says the same thing, you know, try to live peaceably as much as you can. And beloved, don't take vengeance for yourself. Um, Leave room for the wrath of God. And, you know, that's what we... Because it's written, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, yeah. Yeah, we get to chapter 6 of Revelation, and then what is the... The, the body there saying, for how long, Lord, before you avenge us from those who go on the earth? It's this, if you are the possession of God, you're not your own, and God is a jealous God, and he is entitled to that repayment. That repayment is due for mistreatment, but it's his. It's not ours to take, since we are his possession. Right. Because like Jesus said, ultimately, it's not that they hate you. It's that they hate Christ. It's that they hate God. And he's the one that's going to avenge himself and his people. Yeah, It's also interesting, and I really didn't go into it much, but it's interesting that in this psalm, David's not talking about uh, deliver me from armies, enemy armies, and their horses and their chariots. Most of the language is they're saying stuff about me. They're, They're spreading rumors about me. False witnesses lying against me. And sometimes that can do you more damage than an army. Mm-hmm. If people start a whispering campaign about you, it's remarkable how quickly people are willing to believe that stuff and spread that stuff. Any evil, tyrannical king would just stamp that out. <laughs> right. That's yeah. So, yeah. It's one more time evidence that... Uh, just like uh, Solomon writing in the Proverbs and has so much to say about your tongue. James in the New Testament talking so much about your tongue. And so many of these Psalms talking about your tongue. It's just the amount of damage that human beings can do with their words is sometimes greater than the damage that armies can do. Because whisper campaigns can get into the cracks and crevices that uh, a horse and a chariot can't get into combination of pride and a tongue. It's a deadly combo. It's a deadly combo. Anything else? I think on Micah's point, it's definitely more effective to destroy a kingdom from the inside out than for... 
oh, yeah. to come up against other armies and walls and whatnot. So, yeah. Sure. You can have plenty of armies outside the gate, but you may have defense against them. But once the whisper campaign starts from the inside, yeah, that's, that's hard to battle. And so I guess we're done. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace midweek message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.